we were just talking uh, now about crypto crashing drastically. But Wasim, you've been talking about this for quite some time. So um, when did you start to think that you know the crypto will have such a massive crash? I mean, um, I started thinking about the crash when the balloon started inflating. Like, so that's the time when you start thinking about the the closing of the loop. Is when the the loop is itself beginning, or when it becomes apparent. And so, it's probably about 18 months ago. Um, yeah, sort of just before Christmas 2020, the viral winter, as you remember it. Um, uh, Bitcoin broke its previous all-time high, so it hit high of approximately like this is the price we're talking about, market price. Um, in dollars, US dollars, about 20,000 in the very end of 2017, start of 2018, which was the absolute zenith of the mania back then. And that led to a long kind of convalescence crypto winter, uh, which got broken, like as I said, in the start of 2020. So that was 18 months basically of party time. And we've seen a few different kind of waves and we've seen a few different kind of hype bubbles come and go. And uh, now the markets are bathed in blood. And uh, 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 VCs are telling uh, their portfolio companies to tighten their belts. Uh, the biggest companies in the space are laying people off, rescinding job offers. Um, all of these kind of uh, financial alchemy products that people created, both centralized and decentralized ones, are uh, collapsing, imploding, vanishing into thin air. Um, so it's quite a good moment to take stock of like what, the, what actually happened in the last 18 months. Does it remind you about about the you know is there something comparable to the dot bubble in the early 2000s is there like a first kind of is there absolutely or not a, yeah? yeah because like we're talking about finance capital technology and you know the human story and it's all wrapped up together and really what I see is like another iteration like another kind of loop on this endless cycle of humans and technology and religion. And uh, yeah, another set of technologies come along. We think it's going to solve all of our social problems. Uh, we lean into that, and we kind of um, set our put our faith in these things. And then the left wanting, or we're left wanting by the um, limitations of the technologies and the fact that there are some things that technologies just can't can't solve. So yeah, I see like it's really like endless loops repeating. So with the dot com. Um, uh, uh, crash. Somebody I used to work with, so I used to run a journal at a university, and um, the person that I co-founded the journal with ran a um, startup, an internet startup in Silicon Valley in the 90s. You know, so in the boom of the dot-com uh, bubble and into the crash. And this person later became very interested in Bitcoin. They founded the Bitcoin research group that I worked at at that university. And um, so they were saying things like, in the dot-com boom, you could not build a good company. You could not fund a good company, and you could not um, deliver uh, good, good solutions. People didn't want that. They wanted dreams to sell to investors in the middle of the mania. And there's an mm, extremely strong parallel. In, really, I see crypto has far surpassed that, where these things are traded and kind of um, turn into kind of um, you know, icons or cults or religions based on their kind of mimetic gravitas. There's almost nothing to a lot of these things. 
and uh, but yet you can still create a movement around it. That movement is based around this kind of weird tension between collective salvation and individual enrichment. There's this kind of like paradox encoded in the heart of it, um, which you must never point out. Um, but yeah, so these things, like you know, so many things resemble the pyramids of, of yore, and like we are humans, we live in societies. We've been building pyramids out of things for a very long time. But there is something unique uh, with this technology, which is the fact that <clears throat> while with uh, previous crashes, such as the dot-com, uh, <clears throat> entailed a uh, uh, novel technology and how the market reacted to, to that, this technology itself presents uh, new forms of financialization that uh, were not with us uh, yeah, like 20 years ago. So uh, I do wonder the way in which we react to this. Obviously, we had experience with highly volatile uh, products and commodities, mm -hmm. but with Bitcoin, it's inscribed in in itself this um, character of uh, yeah making finance product out of anything based on this uh, technology, which is basically uh, a ledger. So. Um, I do wonder what do you think about yeah trying to <clears throat> analyze a present that it's been defined in terms of of this very particular ledger um, what sort of mechanisms do we have in order to assess what are we doing with with this uh, products that uh, emerge out of this technology Yeah, I mean, I think it's always wise to take, take a step back and think about, like, you know, what, where does this technology sit in the, what, the arc of progress that we're imagining uh, here? And, like, a ledger is, like, one of the magic words because it's something that's uh, universally uh, legible to everybody. So, yeah, we're talking about record-keeping. Like, keeping records, like a, it's like a post-it note that lives in cyberspace forever. And we need to keep records of uh, uh, our debts, of uh, what um, uh, times and places that important things happen, our myths, our legends, uh, assets being transferred and ownership and all the rest of it, contracts for things to happen in the future. And so I think, you know, thinking about one of the interesting lenses that you can think about this is uh, people talk about double entry bookkeeping in terms of accounting. It's a very boring thing. The idea that kind of things going in and things going out need to kind of tally against each other and be consistent. And so you can think of, and I believe it was Ian Grigg that coined this phrase, you can think of Bitcoin and blockchain-based ledgers as giving you a triple entry accounting read, where you've got like a third kind of um, copy through this universally, universally replicable ledger. And so having this kind of distributed ledger, which um, anyone can kind of spin up some software and run, um, means that you have then a scale of... I guess what was basically like an accounting and timekeeping system, which hasn't existed before. Uh, one of my friends made the point recently that um, blockchains had made accounting 
and bureaucracy cool um, by making them headless. You know, by making it this kind of uh, permissionless or this kind of peer-to-peer uh, uh, -peer, um, mode of engagement. And maybe this brings us to the question of the DAOs. Like, um, yeah, you've been talking a lot in the Oxenon, uh, about this, and um, and I mean, you've been quite critical of crypto, but. Um, What about the DAOs? How, how do you feel about the DAOs and which ones do you find interesting, which ones you find problematic? And if you can explain a bit for somebody who doesn't know what a DAO is. Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing is like the term is like something that, it, it, as with so many things in technology fields, we were stuck with this term for a very long time. It doesn't really um, accurately convey the thing that it's meant to describe, but we'll start from it anyway. So a DAO or a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And I take umbrage with every single one of those three words in there, uh, by the way, which we can unpack at some point. Basically, the idea is that we can use blockchains and these ledgers, these highly assured ledgers that we get from the implementation of these blockchain net networks, protocols, we can build crypto native organizations. So we can build entire organizations that kind of either live fully on the blockchain, on chain, or that they're using um, Uh, the blockchain for part of their logics. And I suppose DAOs are closely related to this concept of smart contracts, which, again, it's not a good term. Like, programmable scripts is probably like a better way of thinking about these things. Like, deterministically, kind of reliably reproducible uh, bits of code that can function kind of uh, on a trigger. Vending machine is quite a good analogy that's been used in the blockchain space for, for that kind of thing. So this idea of programmable scripts And these kind of um, crypto native organizations, these kind of autonomous, air quotes, autonomous organizations, the idea is that we could build um, you know, entire societies in cyberspace using this ledger and the assurances of knowing that, you know, because of the way it's secured, the assets that you have today will very likely be the assets you have tomorrow, which is kind of how property rights basically work, I guess. And so you're kind of combining all of these things together to try and imagine a blockchain society or like you know organizational um, uh, existences uh, in this you know cyber realm um, and that's kind of the theory or like that's kind of like how it was mapped out and it was very closely allied to the advent of ethereum which was kind of the first big um, rival to Bitcoin and the first big experiment in general purpose computation on the blockchain and so the, the imaginary from that was we can put everything on the blockchain we can I mean you know do whatever your favorite ride-sharing app or a vacation rental app or dating app we could do that on the blockchain we could build organizations completely native to the to the um to the protocol that would administer that govern that um, there's been some interesting art projects that start you know from that time onwards came out um i think most notably at least in the early days was terra zero in 2016 which is kind of a land art project which basically was trying to think about Can we use these smart contract and DAO logics to give non-human natural entities like forests some kind of pseudo-agency, economic agency at the very least? So imagine a forest could run a like kind of there's a kind of contract a contract loop going where the forest sells its lumber to a lumberjack or a logger. They come and take the, the wood that gives the forest resources. It can then pay people to plant new trees or whatever. And so the idea that we could build these kind of you know. Um, uh, systems which bypass the human loop in the loop, yeah, truly autonomous with a capital A uh, systems. 
Um, and like, you know, fast forward to the present, we had kind of like this decentralized finance boom, we had the NFT boom. And then the last one, we all saw it coming was the decentralized autonomous organization boom. And that's kind of like just kind of petering out now, I suppose. And uh, so lots of people have been trying to use this. So there's now kind of tooling, kind of operating systems to build these things relatively easily. The problem a lot of the time is um, the expense of running the computation on the networks, particularly on Ethereum, can be very expensive to run that. Um, so like every time you vote in one of these, imagine you're in a town hall, but on, you know, on the web. And it's just like a Web2 app, you're on the, your web browser and your, or your app and you're clicking the thing. But every time you click, a transaction's happening on the blockchain and you have to pay a fee. And that fee could be $10, could be a cent, could be $10. And so um, you can see then like there are different dynamics and different frictions to participating in a whatever algorithmic democracy, algorithmic consensus formation, a mechanism like that. And so just to, yeah, I'll say just like one bit more and then let's let's um, talk about all of this. A few different kinds of losses of the or purposes of these organizations. Um, many of them exist to make money for their stakeholders, which, um, by the way, is a regulatory gray, gray area, but that's someone else's battle to fight. So very often they're collecting art or they're collecting tokens or they're buying assets. And it's like a investment club kind of thing, co-op investment club, depending on why people are doing it, how they're doing it, where they're doing it. Um, you can also have, um, yeah, more like community, really like community organizations, uh, people not really bound by some kind of return of profit, could be collective stewardship of a resource, like studio, something like that. Studio DAO, for example. Um, and then you could also, uh, we've seen some explicitly humanitarian projects. So um, Ukraine DAO, Assange DAO, both raised large amounts of money in recent times for single issue causes. Um, and there's also, I suppose, like, let's talk about some of the cautionary tales just before we yeah, wrap this. A few DAOs organized to collect um, funds to buy assets, um, like Constitution DAO wanted to buy an original copy of the US Constitution. And because they'd raised their money on the chain, everyone knew how much money they had. So when they went to the auction, they were outbid by a dollar. Uh, <laughs> by, by the guy, actually, this is great, uh, Miguel, uh, by the guy that um, runs Citadel Securities. So they pay Robinhood, oh, yes. the, the retail uh, trading app. They pay them for order flow, which means they see the orders before they execute, and then they can set counter trades to like line their pockets from, uh, allegedly line their pockets from investor money. Um, so yeah, so they, they got outbid by that guy. And then if you remember Jodorowsky's Dune, yeah, um, maybe this graphic novel, this incredible book you see in the documentary, we all wanted to read that, right? They bought a copy of that, a DAO, a Spice DAO bought a copy of that, thinking that they also then owned the rights to make the film, um, having not realized that it's a book, it's not the rights to make a film. So there's also this big mess of intellectual property and kind of creative ownership, provenance wrapped up in there yeah because I guess one thing that uh, is not ready yet to deal with uh, complex issues that the DAOs and uh, crypto is bringing is like the legal system and there must be a huge uh, 
gaps and now you know it's like there must be like the wild west of uh, I mean it always has been always has been the question is more like can these things ever actually become commensurable like and I really don't think structurally yeah. it's possible yeah. so you're always going to have this kind of slippage or this arbitrage yeah. and then think like so I used to do like I did a regulatory philosophy project uh, before I went to work at the university so I was really thinking about tools for regulators to stop to help them avoid kind of um uh, falling into traps of misclassifying or misunderstanding similarities and differences of these assets and networks. Um, I don't think we can solve the problem, actually. You can try to educate people, but like the problem is these things exist in a grey area. They don't fit neatly into the laws of people and nations. They just don't. And then here's a new kind of escalation, which is, okay, so... And I'll tell you just very briefly, I'm writing a, we're writing a play, Solon's writing a play about the future of Bitcoin. And in that, humans are trying to globally coordinate to regulate Bitcoin. And uh, you can guess how that. <laughs> and in, in, in that regard, um, because probably uh, you know a lot of details that most of us have no idea about it, but do you think it's feasible in a, um, let's say, near future to have a higher level of transactions with cryptocurrencies and a lot of DAOs operating etc so I'm not talking here about using <clears throat> crypto transactions like as we use for example debit and credit cards but with a reasonable use by a huge amount of people in the West is, is, is the system able and has the capacity to to make this in a more efficient way than for example the the debit Revolute cards or, or something yeah or in the case of DAOs any other sort of alternative technology so is the technology yeah. actually presenting a sort of advantage? In terms I mean, of yeah, it's like a multi-layered answer. Like it's a multi-layered technology. So, like at the at the base, like at the at its basis, this technology of of blockchain, this linear append-only ledger that you're creating out of these blocks that you're sewing together with cryptography, that is limited. Like you are limited by the speed of light produces constraints, provides constraints on message propagation across the network. And you've also got a limitation in most cases on how much data you can put in each block, in each page of the ledger. So in Bitcoin, that's one megabyte. Ethereum does it differently, actually measures the amount of computation, cycles of computation in their virtual machine. And that's the kind of the cap. And so you can think about a bit this like, you know, cars on the road. The capacity is limited. And so if you put more cars on the road and you don't expand the road, you have a problem. People tried to expand the road by making the blocks bigger on Bitcoin. And so it actually became a schism. There was a kind of a minority breakaway faction from the, the main Bitcoin network to try building much bigger roads and see if that would fix, fix the problem. And it kind of just pushes externalities onto the operators of the infrastructure. So that is also kind of like a bit of a false, false path. Uh, what got developed first in Bitcoin, now in Ethereum, is what people call layer two technologies. So layer one is the blockchain itself. And people are starting to build, think of like payment channels, a bit like you, we go to a bar and we open a tab at the bar and we each uh, drink uh, three rounds of cocktails and then we settle up and we go home. 
And so there was only one transaction at the end of the night, whereas we made 15 purchases. And these payment channels, which like in, in um, Bitcoin, one example is called the Lightning Network. And in Ethereum, people use things like uh, Raiden. Well, that's one of the examples. And so you can kind of open a tab and you can do a whole bunch of transactions before you close it back to the chain. So in that way, you can do a million transactions without um, uh, having to take your car onto the road, I guess you could say, in our analogy. So there is one opportunity for scale there. But the, um, the way that these networks work, these are more like pathfinding networks. They're not global broadcast as, like a, uh, as Bitcoin is. So finding a path to the destination is more important. You might not be able to make a payment. So it's actually more fragile. It's harder to, to, to use. Um, I actually used to share an office with the guy that invented that. So Bitcoiners say this thing is the panacea. Lightning Network is the panacea. I shared an office with the guy that invented it at MIT. <laughs> and like, he'd already moved on to the next thing. He was like, well, it's, yeah, um, it solves some problems, but we need to solve other. So he'd already moved on. Um, so there are different, scale, basically scaling solutions is kind of what we're talking about uh, here. There are different approaches to that. There's also... Um, you can do things such as like side chains, which are like subsidiary ledgers to a main to a main one, and you can also do more like pe like almost like peer to peer internets of blockchains. A lot of the new kind of um, alternatives to Ethereum are trying to do this more heterogeneous peer to peer. Many blockchains interacting with each other. Everyone gets their own blockchain in in essence. So you have so an app. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Yeah. No, 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 because now I am curious. Uh, maybe you don't know this, but um, have you heard that in Primavera Sound, the, the festival that was in Barcelona mm -hmm. these uh, previous weeks, they installed a little app in order to make the payments inside the, mm -hmm. the festival with crypto? Have you heard about this? No, no, no. I mean, the only thing I heard about Primavera is my friend, uh, the caretaker, Leyland James Kirby played. So I was bound oh. to miss it. That's the only thing I know. Okay. So, so uh, no worries. No, I just wonder if, if you knew what sort of approach they took in order to, to handle these transactions, because I guess it's a sort of, yeah, I mean, mini probably not a Probably not a blockchain unless they were doing it to be like, hey, we used a blockchain, everybody. Oh, no, um, no, no. It was the blockchain. Oh, was it? Okay, they did. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The fees but, are, you know, which... I mean, the thing is, you can set up your own blockchain. So maybe that's the way you do it, like an application-specific one. And it's not decentralized, right? You run it or yeah. like... it's So you're kind of giving concessions to authority or concessions to... Uh, centralization some way. So it's like a mini, like a minor. So then the proof of work is very small, or like uh, the, it probably wouldn't be proof of work. Okay. I imagine like it. So you would just have a series of nodes. They might be whitelisted. It might uh, be like a permission system. Yeah. So there's like 10 computers at Primavera server headquarters, yeah. and they have the right to make a block. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, yeah, but yeah. I imagine yeah, just like just reading system. here. Um, The, the news Binance partner with Primavera Sound Festival 2022. So Primavera Sound Foundation will host the festival, which we will take, well, yeah, Barcelona, Spain and Porto. So Binance will be demonstrating the latest in blockchain and NFT tech, uh, blah, blah, blah. So the thing is, that Lodal Primavera Sound attendees receive an exclusive NFT mystery box, blah, blah, blah. And the thing is that, uh, yeah, we'll be able to pay with cryptocurrency for the first time 
at the event thanks to Binance Pay, which I guess is the... I think Binance Pay is probably like Google Pay. It's like a third-party payment yeah. process. And they, so they have their own coin. Binance is an exchange, and they also have their own coin. And they also have their own blockchain. Um, there's lots of kind of um, projects which launch on Ethereum. Some people make a very similar version that launches on Binance like the next mm. day. So that's mm. the kind of that's the kind of place it is. Um, yeah, I'm a bit um, interested to see Primavera partner with Binance. Binance is not got the reputation as the most. Oh no, no. And actually, I ask you about this because yeah. in Spain. Uh, they received a lot of criticism because, uh. yeah, the third-party uh, apps that were installed on your smartphones, if you were taking part of this, actually, I don't know, because they had problems in the bars in order mm. to have, uh, like, drinks and water, etc. So I think you had to use this sort of token system for certain bars at least mm -hmm. so i don't know the all the details but i was uh yeah my experience i used to go to like these crypto conferences before the pandemic like kind of at the hackers congress in prague or wherever else and it would be full of people that were like resolutely committed to paying with cryptocurrency just like kind of demonstrate that they can buy a coffee with lightning network or buy you know lemon cake with ethereum or, or, or whatever um but like these things are not that usable that's the real kind of there's a there's a gap there which i'm not even sure you can bridge with user ex, user you know, ux abstraction and so on design um so for example you know i send a transaction to matan with bitcoin and like it takes a minute depending on how much of a fee i put on it, it takes a while for it to go into the blockchain for a miner to include it in a block and then we're only really sure that the money is safe and spendable after a few more blocks have been built on that because um, you can think of Bitcoin and the blockchain as kind of like this arrow of time. In fact, Satoshi called it the time chain before he called it a blockchain. Uh, but the reality with proof of work is because of the way that the consensus is formed, if somebody comes along and puts a bunch of energy in, they can rewrite the history of the network, starting with the most recent blocks first, which is why when I, when I send, uh, you know, whatever coin to Binance, they want to see these what they call confirmations to see how many blocks deep your transaction is, to know that the, the timeline, the historicity isn't going to be reorganized. Because the number one uh, uh, victim of these attacks, of these 51% um, attacks, we call them, are exchanges. So for example, like I would go to Binance or some other exchange, and I would up, uh, uh, um, send some coins there to their wallet, and then they would come up on my exchange. They'd go into their wallet, and then it's just an obligation on their company right so it's no longer your coins in a bitcoin wallet it's just like on a database at the exchange and then people would trade with that and then withdraw those coins and then revert the transaction on the blockchain it's very expensive to do on bitcoin but people could do it with the smaller coins mm -hmm. i used to study this kind of um rehistoricization yeah mm -hmm. it's quite interesting and do you think that if you know we were talking just before um, about finally ethereum saying that they will change to proof of state. Mm. Uh, will proof of state solve some of the problems? And if you can a bit of explain how proof of state will yeah. uh, work as an opposition to proof of work? Yeah, well, let's say also about quickly about proof of work as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so like proof of work is the, the mining that we've all heard about, this energy intensive process through which global consensus is reached in Bitcoin and currently Ethereum. Um, so you can think of it like a lottery. 
That's the best way I've found to explain it. So they have these kind of specialized pieces of hardware, application-specific integrated circuits, ASIC miners. And these are running in massive data centers these days. It's not really what the originators intended. They intended like machine democracy, one CPU, one vote. Instead, we ended up with kind of like whatever capitalist scale, like unsurprisingly. Um, and so, yeah, each cycle, computation cycle, is a, is a hash, which is like a, you can think of it as a meat grinder. It's a way of doing a, it's a function which turns a piece of information of arbitrary length, a string of arbitrary length, into a piece of information of fixed length. So you put a steak into the meat grinder and you get mince out. It's one way. You can't put mince in and get steak out. And so we use this, these hash functions um, to, uh, and each one of these hash functions is a ticket in the lottery of the Bitcoin mining race. So every time somebody does one of these hashing cycles, uh, they get a lottery ticket. And depending on the parameters of the network, that may be a winning ticket or it might not be, right? It's a lottery. And if you win the lottery, it's your job to then, it's like a bit game of bingo. You then tell everyone on the network, hey, I found a block, let's add it to the blockchain. And then the whole thing starts again. So that is essentially mining. Um, and the reason Bitcoin does this is because um, there's no leader in this consensus formation. The person that wins the, the ones that wins the lottery gets the right to make the next block and they get a reward, which is encoded inside the, the logic of the block. They take a reward, like 6.25 Bitcoins at the moment. And so that is the kind of the mining race. And so, you know, you've rightly heard about the massive amounts of energy that this consumes, um, you know, equivalent to, uh, you know, insert name of small country here, but the name of the small country keeps getting bigger. And, uh, you know, even though the price of Bitcoin is down, the amount of computation it's currently using is at close to its all-time high. And so this is actually the graph that is even more brutal than the price is the hash rate. Uh, you can look it up on the on the web if you're interested. And so yes, that's the kind of that's the ecological cost or the impact is heat, e-waste, and all the rest of it, entropy, essentially. So Bitcoin doesn't have a way of generating randomness. And so entropy is being brought in through the mining. And and the mining is also being used to distribute the coins. So now nineteen of the twenty one million coins have gone out to basically miners to start with, then they sell them or move them around. And it's also providing the security for the network. So the idea, as I just mentioned earlier, this 51% attack, if you want to rewrite the history of the network and rewrite the balances of who's got what, you need to put more energy in than has already been expended. And so that's kind of like the thermodynamic monument of proof of work. Like it's, it's basically like, the, you know, I've heard it described as the new pyramids. And you can think of it in that kind of way that to tear it down would require a lot of energy as well and so proof of stake is like a you know much vaunted but perhaps untested um proposal alternative proposal for ways of reaching distributed consensus in these decentralized systems so the idea here is that instead of this real resource of the energy being burned in this cycles of uh, hashing and mining we instead use a virtual resource which is we lock up our coins our stake be like the chips at the poker table your stake we render them illiquid. We lock them up. And that is meant to be the virtual resource that replaces the real resource of the energy consumption. And so the big question about proof of stake is, is it enough? Is this virtual resource of Ill illiquidity enough to like build a global decentralized network and secure it? Um, if it is, great, we don't need to do the mining anymore. But... The Bitcoiners are going to continue mining whatever happens. 
Like Bitcoin's committed to staying to this thing. Ethereum people have been, especially the loudest voices in that community, have been uh, motioning and signaling that they must move away from proof of work since the, actually before the beginning of the network. So like now seven years or whatever. And so those are the two kind of main families of consensus mechanisms in, in blockchains, in centralized blockchains that we have now. But I would just say, like, just to reiterate that proof of stake has not really been tested at the, the computational and an economic scale that Ethereum operates at today. So there are other networks, newer ones, that launched from proof, with proof of stake from the start, um, but they have not been tested, in my opinion, economically or in terms of computer security. And before we like open it, just one other cautionary tale, which is about complexity. Um, so it's by replacing this real resource with a virtual one, we have to create this kind of financially engineered system. So it's more like we're back to financial alchemy again. It's very complicated and, and opaque. And when there's things that are complicated and opaque, then you know that there's inside asymmetries and there's you know polities that can extract advantages. And um, so yeah, I. There's even a paper by Julia Fanti and co-workers, the Carnegie Mellon computer science theorist, called Rich Get Richer, Compounding of Wealth and Proof-of-Stake Cryptocurrencies, where she, they've actually formally proved that like, this is a system where um, it becomes less equal over time. And so, yeah. Like, yeah, proof-of-work is the worst consensus mechanism, apart from all the others, uh, to paraphrase Winston Churchill. Mm, and in that regard, so... Um, we are familiar with the problems uh, in forks and the current system that we have now for mining, but do you think uh, proof of stake is uh, a danger in terms of the decentralized nature of, of, of the chain? So it could present these problems that you were mentioning right now, mm -hmm. that it's um, the, the idea behind this, uh, how this consensus is achieved, is not as robust mm -hmm. as the idea of this lottery or this way of producing uh, entropy. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, let's first think about decentralization. Hmm. and centralization because we talk about them as if they're you know existing in this mutually exclusive binary but in reality as with so many things these are really more like pushes and pulls like you know spectrums things that are flowing from you know one extreme to another and um i heard somebody say and i forgot where the quote came from uh, that there's no decentralization without centralization so these are two things that are kind of wrapped up in each other um and you know It's very hard to get a good definition of decentralization. Many of us have tried. Um, but I think that Vitalik, one of the co-founders of Ethereum, he wrote a, a, an article called The Meaning of Decentralization in uh, 2018, I believe. And he was kind of teasing it out into layers, kind of a stack, my meta model, where you're talking about um, logical decentralization or centralization in terms of like the unity of the data, like you know the, the globality of the consensus or the totality of the consensus of the data layer. And then you talk about uh, how uh, uh, totalizing the kind of monetary layer uh, is, or the socio-political layer, and so on. And so when you start thinking about it and teasing it into those kind of um, uh, different variegations, 
then it sometimes, uh, you know, it actually helps because you can think of a system that is socially quite decentralized. There's no kind of lead, obvious leaders or whatever, like Bitcoin, uh, but it's logically centralized. We'll, we'll have one blockchain, one history to rule them all. And so that is, you know, unified. And so you can also think about, you know, once you start to think that there's different spheres or poles existing with this kind of, this within these spectrums, I think that also helps you try to, um, yeah, try to uh, pick apart uh, at the at the nugget of it. And actually, I forgot where we were going with that because I, I get so wrapped up in this decentralization question. Uh, we were talking about? about, yeah, if uh, proof of stake oh, yeah. presents uh, more problems for mm. decentralization. I think it, so. In that terms, we'll think, you can think of it as centralization pressure. I think that's one of the ways to think about it. So one of the prob one of the challenges of proof of stake uh, related to this, we're not using a real resource burnt energy we're using a virtual one so the thing that makes it very expensive for an attacker to rewrite the history of bitcoin the 51 attack we just mentioned they need to burn loads of energy in proof of stake you do not need to burn loads of energy to write a new timeline so that means that i can say that uh, matan is running a proof of stake cryptocurrency node and he's joining the network for the first time and i'm running a node and i am uh, you know either morally dubious or byzantine malicious actor and i've written my own timeline where I have lots of coins in my timeline more than I should and when when Matan's join node joins the network he's looking for peers to download and synchronize the blockchain a bit like torrents basically kind of connecting to a peer network and synchronizing data in shards and fragments and so I can feed you malicious timelines there's no penalty for me doing that in many cases and so that is what's called the long-range attack because there's nothing at stake with burning the virtual resource. And so the mitigations, getting to your point, Miguel, the mitigations to address these kinds of issues are the things which lead to the centralization pressure because they mm. either put trust back into authorities or yeah. they kind of um, draw lines in the sand where you can't rewrite the history after this period of time. And yeah. so then it starts to be kind of like political, you know, decisions are being made about yes. like <laughs> who decides what's... Yeah canonical what's true what can never be altered what can be altered and the other thing to say is i mean like everything that came after bitcoin there's a founder usually a dude right there's the guy and like if the governments don't like the thing they can go speak to the guy and so that is the other kind of ultimate um tension here the most of the especially at the base layer that layer one protocols all these new ethereums you know and bitcoin um there's usually like a startup team that did a big raise and they fund funded by venture capitalists and all the rest of it and so like to expect something really radical out of that structure i'm a little bit dubious and do you think any of this ah oh, sorry my team um, go ahead uh, this is a bit of a big question uh, before we talk about that you've been also thinking about time and when you say you know this malicious timelines uh, it makes me wonder are there good um, approaches or do you I, mean, I guess you've been trying to think about this but I'm trying to think on in what ways is in what ways are uh, this technological developments rewriting the course of history 
mm. or you know previous ways of understanding history and in which ways is are these new technologies giving new approaches that shake our previous history mm. understanding or understanding of histories however problematic mm. they might be but you know because you know it's really a you know basically a literally game changer time changer yeah i think there's two things like i'm um, like i'm um, sensing in here there's one about record keeping and there's another one about the sense of historicity or like you know the notion of passage of time or whatever bergsonian duration or you know whatever um so in terms of record keeping um uh, it's i mean in principle you have like this kind of everlasting immutable ledger this idea that you know immutability is not a new concept the idea that we can't change something i mean go back to the foundational texts of many important religions and they are like you know they have their own protocols for preserving the um consistency of that information so i grew up as a muslim and like you basically weren't supposed to change the quran not supposed to do it and it was only like much later that english translations came out and interpretations and stuff like that and so i guess that was a way of like trying to preserve the um the purity or the gravitas of a historicity or something like that and so yeah i think the technology itself lends itself to it's inherently record keeping memory formation uh, um advice for memory formation um so i think that if we find out i still don't even know if we'd know how to use these things properly yet but like if we find out how to use them properly as record keeping devices mm. that could be something really interesting like you know these are if they really can live a thousand years or 10,000 million years then maybe we are building the time capsules and the time machines like you know that you know we've been dreaming of from sci-fi to transcendental philosophy um and then yeah in terms of the sense of sense of historicity or sense of time I think for me the most interesting thing about these technologies and just coming you know looping back to transcendental philosophy for a moment is that um and you know n numerous thinkers have hinted at this you know over the years as well is that it seems that we have this kind of whatever transcendental materialist fabric where we can like do we have like a substrate for metaphysical speculations so one of the best things maybe it's the only good thing about blockchains maybe it's one of them is that we can build kind of toy models of the universe, whatever the universe you take to be the universe. You can build little economic systems, little political systems like DAOs. You can build economic systems like currencies and just like kind of watch what happens. It's kind of like a little laboratory, a little goldfish bowl, create little religions or little ideologies. Um, and uh, seeing, a, I mean, like you can also think of blockchains is giving you a new kind of timekeeping system this idea of block time or block height like you know so blocks are being added one by one in this linear append only uh, record and so there is no clock time here there's no calendar time there's no like moon phase there's no zodiac sign it's just block time it has its own this time uh, this temporality has its own internal synchronicity and it's not explicitly connected to the outside time the only way that the outside time finds its way into Bitcoin in particular is through the miners. When they win the right to make a new block, they include a temporal attestation. So they include a timestamp. And that timestamp is given in uh, Unix, the Unix timestamping format, 32-bit unsigned integer. 
Um, yeah, and there's many interesting things about like what happens with those timestamps. Um, but like I, I think at this point, what's really good to say is that at its heart, Bitcoin is a timestamping machine. And like really what you're doing with this discretization of time from this kind of continuous imminent network activity into these strictly sequenced orders of blocks is that you are um, ascertaining with a high level of assurance the order of a sequence of events. And that is pretty much it. The events are messages. The messages are changes of the balances of Bitcoins. But it's basically a timekeeping system. And so if you think back to like, you know, the CCRU days, the Anna Greenspan, Capitalism's Transcendental Time Machine, and you know, everything that kind of came after that, all the speculations like cryptocurrency and all the rest of it, um, it does seem that you have this kind of interesting kind of um, substrate with which to play with time. I don't know if we ever had something quite as um, uh, malleable in that sense. Miguel, you had a question before that. Uh, yeah, sorry. but I completely forgot and I changed my mood too. <laughs> I'll just say also, uh, like, follow on that point actually, real quick. Um, uh, Anna Greenspan's thesis is in my mind because um, it had, it was. Uh, just over two decades ago it came out right it came out in the year 2000 and um, so it is coming out as a book quite soon and we're writing the introduction to it uh, me and a couple of friends fantastic yeah oh, that's so, great um, yeah so we're trying to then make the link like you know so Anna is going through like you know this Kantian read of time and this Deleuze Qatarian kind of inversion of that the ionic occurrence and the example of Y2K and if you extrapolate a bit further out it's not too hard to loop a thread through Bitcoin and so I think that's where we're, we're going with that. So, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. I wrote an article last year called um, Reminiscences of a Clock Operator, where I was talking about this kind of like these tensions and these extant kind of emergent examples of, you know, weird temporalities in the blockchain. But in connection to the uh, Anna Greenspan's uh, book, do you have any takes on, the, on these lands? conception of blockchain and the synthesis of time did you think about that or yeah i thought about it i i read all of that i mean i re basically i read all of cryptocurrent uh, two summers ago like the summer first summer of the pandemic around the same time i actually first read uh, Anna greenspan's thesis and um i mean we all know that Nick is a brilliant rhetorician. So like some of the turns of phrase and the kind of like, you know, po poetic encapsulations were really like, you know, um, uh, helpful, me to, helpful for me as I was trying to form my own opinions and of something to grasp onto. Uh, but when I started going deeper into like trying to understand the kinds of time that the blockchain and the networks are producing and then what the kind of emergent phenomena that that gives rise to, um, I kind of had to leave that stuff you know, to one side. But I like these ideas of like, you know, chronogenic apparatuses, you know, uh, uh, mechanisms for synthesizing time. There's really helpful frames of reference. Um, but I can't help but feel that cryptocurrency is an unfinished, heavily unfinished project. Mm. Um, yeah, I wonder if it ever, wonder if it ever gets finished. Yeah, I, I, I just remember the, the previous question, which has nothing to do with this. But um, nonetheless, uh, I am really interested in, in your opinion. Uh, what do you think is going to happen when, when 
we finish uh, mining all the mm. millions of bitcoins because mm. uh, the reaction that the ecosystem that we now have uh, ne needs to be something completely different from the dynamics that we are experiencing today. The relationship that we are going to establish with Bitcoin is going to be different because the way in which uh, we move forward now is by producing additional Bitcoin. But as soon as we are over, what is going to occur? Do you have any ideas in mind? I mean, I can offer some speculations. That's about the best we can really do. So yeah, just like um, zoom out a minute. Like I think we mentioned earlier that as of today, just over 19 million of the 21 million Bitcoins mm. that ever exist have already been mined, issued to miners and exist out in like, you know, users' wallets. And the remaining 2 million or so um, are yet to be algorithmically issued by the network mm. as bounties to the miners. Every four years or so, the bounty, that's the, the bribe that exists in the block for the miners, the reason they do all the work, the incentive for them, that halves on this kind of stepping down function. And so we're asymptotically going to reach 21 million uh, slower and slower and slower. We'll get closer and closer to it. And so the, the theory or the idea is <clears throat> that when the subsidy, when the bribe, these free coins, these 6.25 Bitcoins that are given to every miner of every block today, when those are finally down to zero, then um, the, well, the miners are still need to get, going to need to get paid because they're burning energy and they're building specialized equipment and operating data centers and all the rest of it but that money is going to have to come from the users so that means that like you know little timmy and little tommy that want to send transactions to each other i mean it's not going to be a dollar fee it's not and so this is one of the interesting kind of narrative shifts and especially in bitcoin over the years where at first you know lana schwartz was a, a great um uh, social science humanities researcher that characterized all of this many years ago we had this kind of shift from infrastructural mutualism the kind of peer-to-peer -peer thing we will build it together for everyone to this kind of digital metalism where we're kind of using that kind of libertarian frame the technical the conservative economic frame um uh to do with scarcity economics and kind of um uh equating labor to capital uh, that uh, yeah, that the kind of gold bugs and the techno conservatives do, um, but yeah, I think we end up in this kind of. What can I say yeah, uh, Bitcoin is more conservative than those kind of um, right wing strains that ran through technology before it. But yeah, I, dig I digress slightly. Um, so yeah, we will hit the limit of the coins, and then there'll be no more coins from the network to the miners. So the idea is that the users will pay loads more for their transactions that will exclude more people from being able to afford to use the network the key thing in here is we don't know what the exchange price of bitcoin will be in the future like the to usd or to euros whatever you're paying for your electricity bills in most generally and so for the um thing to make sense the price has to keep going up this is the kind of the ponzinomics that underlies almost all of these things or at least pyramid dynamics let's say is that the price needs to keep going up. So right now, what needs to happen is people need to buy the coins that the miners are printing every day to keep the price from collapsing. And if there's not enough buyers, the price falls because the miners are selling these coins. True, a first approximation. So yeah, we'll reach the end. 
and maybe Bitcoin is like, what, maybe it's only $20,000 a coin, maybe it's only $200 a coin, maybe it's $20 million a coin, nobody knows. And then that will kind of determine how much you have to pay for your transaction to go through. But at that point, Bitcoin is not for you and I. Bitcoin is like, if it, you know, if the prophecies come to pass of the believers, Bitcoin is settling debts for nation states the same way that gold, bags of gold, freight planes full of gold do. So that's the kind of, that's the end game of that. You could also, you know, wonder about the sustainability of proof of work itself. Like, you know, is this thing going to be secure enough? Are enough people going to want to mine this thing to give it that kind of energy buffer, to give it the security that it needs? And so I think with almost 100% certainty, like just a little bit less than 100%, I would expect a faction to appear inside the Bitcoin community that says, hey, Satoshi was great. We love Satoshi, but he got this one thing wrong. They got this one thing wrong. We shouldn't have the limited supply because um, then we can't pay for the security. And so then what but, I expect is... Oh, go ahead, Miguel. Yeah. No, no, no. I am... Um, I just expect three, four, Yeah, I expect the bit to be like 21 million coin, deflationary coin and inflationary coin. And then you kind of have this, whatever, Keynesian, you know, uh, beauty contest. And we'll see like which of the which of the monies more like a Bayesian beauty contest probably, uh, but we'll see which of these two monies like lives out. But the thing is, when you get like the schisms, we've had it before, like this fork wars in 16, 17, and 18, it's um, like everything gets super wild. So like I, I think those are kind of that is one of the existential risks of, in Bitcoin. Really, there's a paper by Narayanan et al., the Princeton computer scientists, called on the instability of Bitcoin without the block reward. And this is a formal treatment from 2017-18, so maybe even 16. And they basically proved that like without the subsidy, I think it's very shaky. Do you think uh, Satoshi might be behind any of the other crypto projects that <laughs> use uh, proof of stake? I mean, I, I think the most likely thing by now is that Satoshi is long gone. Like Satoshi left the material plane, and uh, you know became an aeonic occurrence of their own. But so, do you think? Do you yeah. really think that he's dead, or do you think that doesn't matter? The most likely. I mean, again, like everyone has their theories for this thing. It's like the biggest mystery of the internet. I was once having dinner with Adam Back, the inventor of Hashcash, which is the precursor to proof of work. He cited in the Bitcoin white paper, and he had his speculations about who he thought it was because he had a lot of correspondence with people who want to use his. Uh, technology was tool uh, in those days. Um, he thought it was some Japanese guy that nobody had ever heard of. Um, the most recent plausible theory you'll find on the internet is about an American postdoc that was living in Belgium. I can't remember, even remember his name, Len something or other. You'll find it on the internet. And um, it matched, that matches up quite well with the analysis of the times that Satoshi posted, which were in the EU time zones. It seemed like EU daytimes, he was posting and the stylometric analysis of the writing, which suggested that it was um, either a non-American or some American that was living outside America, something like that. And that guy died in 2011, which is when Satoshi disappeared. And so like, I don't know, but that's the story I would like to believe because it's the simplest kind of in my mind. And I can just kind of kiss goodbye to that mystery. I don't have to think about that anymore. Yeah. I can tell you who it most likely isn't, Uh, the Australian guy that sues everybody that says it isn't him. It's probably not him. Probably not. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, 
you've been doing in the salon these sessions on the price of anarchy and uh, yeah like this technology is kind of a forms of international kind of cooperation that go beyond the nation state and there is a lot of potential for forms of cooperation beyond kind of yeah, nationalisms or forms of identity or you know but uh, at the same time we are in times of strong forms of nationalism and strong forms of uh, you know identities kind of reaffirming you know some of them because of many you know years and centuries of oppression others that they feel threatened um, and we actually mentioned Nick Land, who is, you know, I guess, a very controversial figure, you know, being accused, obviously, of racism and so on. Um, so how do you see this kind of, uh, a kind of, between the radical potential mm. in terms of offering a different forms of organization beyond the nation state in times where we live in a very conservative atmosphere and you know increasing nationalism how does this scenes situate mm. within this uh... yeah i mean okay so much there why don't we start with inside and outside if we're talking about that the outside guy yeah, let's talk about inside and outside. And so, like, you know, we're humans, we form kinship groups, you know, like we have families, we have communities, like, you know, friends in the Keats. And then, you know, these things scaled up into, I guess, like, you know, societies and, you know, whatever the global kind of amalgam of that is. And I see, like, again, coming back to this point of seeing these kind of crypto networks as little kind of petri dishes or little kind of you know toy models i see also like these networks as little tribes as little societies and it's very interesting when we talked about the forks and the schisms before because that's a bit like the religious fractures that we've seen like you know time and again um and so i wonder now like if crypto tribalism is kind of like the 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 inside counterpart to the kind of ethno-nationalism of the outside i don't i mean i'm just like spitballing spitballing a bit here um but the one of the interesting things about the tribes that crypto creates these protocols create is like i see especially in bitcoin i see this like very defensive mindset and we're using this like massive amount of energy burning wasting energy to be sure of this thing which is extremely nihilistic place to start from um, and it, oh, I read a really interesting, this is a slight sec uh, segue, but I read a really interesting article about NFTs called When the Stagnation Goes Virtual by Ginevra Davis in Palladium magazine. And it was talking, it was a person that wasn't from that space that went to an NFT conference in New York City. And what they said is what they saw in this kind of rush to get all these NFTs, which would be kind of persistent identities in whatever metaverses the people are building, this thing was cut by that absolutely brutal techno nihilism. That this is like it, basically people had given up on the real world and they were staking their claim to you know these um you know uh digital trinkets as a kind of 
part of a retreat. And like, and so I wonder now when I see the crypto tribalism, if that is some kind of retreat from the, the, the real, yeah, into these kind of like whatever fantasy lands where ideology and economics are all kind of mixed to mixed together. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, I kind of fan- fancy myself as a crypto anthropologist for a few years, and it's quite extreme what you see on the inside of one of those little kind of communities. And like, it's not pleasant at the moment with the prices kind of cratering and people that thought they were in one particular kind of situation finding themselves to be another kind of situation. Um, but it's very interesting from an anthropological perspective when people wake up to the fact that they've, you know, um, the reality wasn't as they saw. Whether you could say that they've been brainwashed or radicalized or whatever, deluded, hypnotized, I mean, is, an, is another matter. Um, but yeah, you see these kind of collective imaginaries of these little communities, and they're united around financial salvation, basically. We're all going to make it, is the rallying cry. And then I suppose the kind of zero sum nature of markets hits as the market, as the you know, cycle reverts. And um, then the people that thought they were all in it together are actually fighting each other. And that's kind of, I guess, the problem when you make experimental technologies into speculative objects. And like, there's no way to put that genie back in the box, in the bottle with this stuff. And so that's kind of the problem with all of these token projects. As soon as there's a token, it's all about the token. I even know of a project where um, people were doing an interesting kind of art. It was like an art, experimental art program. At least that's how it was built. And everyone was getting a universal basic income, like 800 bucks a month, I think it was, or something like that. So, you know, you could pay your rent with that in Berlin if you're, if you're young. And once the UBI started rolling out, once the, once the salary, the stipend started rolling out, it was all about the stipend. It was all about the money. And so the art project kind of became secondary to the remuneration for the project. And I think that is like a little bit of a kind of cautionary tale in like how putting speculative objects in things refocuses people's attention and priority. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about a um, conversation that I had several times in previous months uh, with people I know uh, that maybe they are progressive uh, minded left-wing sort of individuals, but more and more these skepticisms uh, around, uh, let's say, pensions schema, the uh, nation state providing um, good retirement, a good, a good security regarding health providers, etc. So. I've heard many comments about, yeah, those who are tech-savvy and they know the technologies, maybe rather than contributing to the nation-state pension schema, basically buying Bitcoin. No? Mm. And it's uh, an example of people that in the past they were pretty much with this idea of basic bare bones idea of socialism 
a more or less centralized state trying to correct inequalities, trying to prevent from certain groups of people being oppressed by other groups, etc. But they see uh, that the, the future is no longer going to secure these sort of mechanisms that in the past we took as, uh, yeah, as, as secure by the nation state. So, yeah, I don't know what do you think about this, because, yeah, I see many, yeah, particularly young people. That yeah, they, I mean, I think we can generalize it even beyond the nation state. I mean, I just like it seems that everywhere we look the last few years, the um, trust and faith in institutions writ large seems to be collapsing. Um, and like seems to be almost regardless of the kind of institution, like whether it's universities or governments or corporations or health services or whatever else. So I guess against that backdrop, the idea of whatever contra-institutional, para-institutional alternatives makes sense. Like in, we all saw in the pandemic, the failure of top-down, globally coordinated anything, and the emergence of like much more horizontal mutual aid groups and people sharing information among themselves. Um, I think that those two things coupled, the loss of faith in institutions and the realization that people can organize themselves using the technology, the tools they already have, like, you know, Telegram or whatever. You don't need a blockchain to look after your neighbor, you know, make a little neighborhood um, uh, a union or, or a association or something. Um, I think it kind of ties into an interesting uh, concept which people use quite a lot in, um, in the blockchain space, which I think came from uh, a thinker called Hirschman in the middle of the 20th century, which is voice and exit. And maybe you've come across this in terms of political philosophy, Matan, I'm not sure. Um, but the idea uh, is that like, you, know, you give people a voice, so they're represented in the kind of whatever process of governance, whether that's democracy or whatever else. Um, but then there's also a way for them to leave. Like, should their voice not um, be heard? Then there's also a way, way for them to, you know, mechanism for them to, to secede, to exit. And uh, with, with blockchains, we have the um, mechanism of the fork as one of the mechanisms for, for exit. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think, although the fork is not a method of individual exit, not really. Like, I can't go make my own Bitcoin just me if like, I disagree with Satoshi's parameters I need a community to be with me for this thing to like you know, be valuable or, or worthwhile or, or whatever um, but I think having the having that notion built into it and having this kind of like you know these logics of freedom these kind of libertarian logics of freedom coded into it it does lend itself well to um, either the imaginary or the, you know, possibly the you know an actual reality of you know whatever like para-institutional anarchist living um, trying to minimize your reliance on state and top-down structures. Um, I think one of the nicest ways to think about Bitcoin in particular is as a money of last resort, something like that. So like you know if the money in your pocket, your Visa card, your EC card, your Revolut your N26 if that is working Bitcoin is not useful as a payment system to you but it's not necessarily 
working that well. The system doesn't work that well for everybody. And so um, I have mixed feelings about Bitcoin. If you check out any of my work, you'll see it's very mixed. Um, but I, li I think it's important that something exists that provides an alternative to people that are kind of locked out of existing systems. Sweden is quite an interesting example on payments because Sweden, you probably might have heard that Sweden is this cashless society. They went towards cashlessness. I used to curate an arts festival in, in Sweden for several years. So I used to go every summer. And um, it's true, you can pay with your card everywhere. That's great. But like they couldn't make it cashless, cashless because they realized the last few percent of people that they're about to like push off a ledge don't have bank accounts, can't speak Swedish, uh, credit card companies won't give them accounts. So if you have a system based on digital payments through cards, you need a credit card company decides whether you eat or not. The bank decides whether you eat or not. And then, you know, you're back in the, you know, serfdom of like a networked overlord once more. And so that, I think, like speaks to this point that you're making, Miguel, about the loss of faith in, in the top-down institutions and trust in those and this kind of freedom imaginary inside Bitcoin, whether or not it's really kind of accurate and an accurate portrayal of the reality of the system. I see it as people can, people see buying Bitcoin as an opt-out of financial system, like global status quo in terms of you know, politics and so on. And I used to see it like that as well. Yeah, I guess uh, and, yeah, through Fair Talk and you know, the Fair Coin was trying to do that, you know, to give to people who didn't have papers or who didn't have, you know, they, they had this project where it was yeah, utilizing these technologies, but also existing legal frameworks in order to be able to use by people without papers or people who didn't want to be part of the state that's I mean I guess there is always potential for new forms of political organizations how are you doing in terms of time is I'm good I'm actually just looking up Faircoin because like I haven't I realized I haven't thought about it for a while yeah yeah, so yeah. I'm just wondering like how it's, how it's doing basically I'm good I'm good for time like I would like to carry on with you yeah I mean um, there is uh, there is two issues that I'm interested I don't know which one first and which one second but you know one is I mean you are a philosopher but also a poet and you know an artist so one is your interest in art uh, in regards to this and the other one is your disenchantment you know mm -hmm. the moment when you know when, when that happened and you know so they are almost they're contradictory related. yeah they're related, related. yeah okay. so I, what I'll do is I'll tell you the, my story through Bitcoin Okay. And then, like the last chapter, the current chapter we're writing now is the art about Bitcoin. So I think that's probably yeah. Okay. So turn back the clock ten years, and um, yeah, I was an experimental musician, a little bit like yourself, Matan, like moving in similar circles uh, back in those days. And I was in the west coast of the United States. We played a gig in San Francisco with some people from uh, Schematic and Detroit Underground, nice experimental electronic American labels of yore. And um, one of the people I was touring with said, hey, let's go visit my buddy. He's doing an internship at Intel. This is uh, spring, summer 2013. So we'll go to his shoebox in Santa Clara. He opens, we you know, meet, discuss. He opens his closet and says, check this out. I'm doing this thing called mining Bitcoin. So he worked at Intel. He made a mining computer out of GPUs just with what's in the spare parts closet in America, in uh, Intel. 
but the power cost was very high. So he was just complaining about this thing. He was like, this sucks, it's really expensive, I hate it, blah, blah, blah. It's really hot, I don't like it, it's noisy. Um, but then he explained the thing to me, and I was like, oh, it's the money that the, you know, it's natively digital, uncensorable, unseizable form of value transfer. And so for me, like, my family's from Iraq. So they um, were, uh, they're now, you know, they, were, you know, they left Iraq a long time ago. They had economic and political problems with Saddam Hussein. So when I f- saw Bitcoin, I was like, oh, it's the thing that the bad guy can't take away from you. And I was immediately like, freedom money, I get it. Like, this is what this could be. It was a science experiment back then. Right, so we were just watching. So I just watched this thing for a while. 2013 kind of came and went. There was a big speculative market mania back in 2013. Bitcoin went to $1,000. It was wild and crazy. Everyone was like, oh my God, it's a new paradigm. And then a bit like what's been happening recently with the stable coins collapsing and the exchanges halting withdrawals, the biggest exchange where 90% of the trading was done um, became insolvent and went under. And people said, this is the end of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's dead, dead. Bitcoin's dead, RIP. But I'm watching and I see blocks getting confirmed, transactions going in the ledger, and I'm like, oh, it's a cockroach. That's actually interesting. Because if you can't stop it and you can't choose who uses it, then it's really, you can see there's this potential liber- liberatory, emancipatory potential for freedom in this encoded in this technology or the implications of it. So anyway, I got a bit more deeper into it. 2014, 15 was like, really the lowest point for Bitcoin. Like it was, looked like it was gone, it would never come back. And then by 16, I was kind of like doing research, 17, I was writing papers, and then I went back to university in 17. I was in a business school in Scotland. That did not go very well. Um, I was trying to do this mix of philosophy and data science, and I was in a business school, and they were just like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, but I wrote the papers, which got me like my first kind of invited research presentations. I went to South Korea to speak about Forks, for example. I spoke about the regulatory philosophy project token space in, in three continents. And then I got a job at MIT to start their cryptocurrency journal uh, called Crypto Economic Systems. Couldn't get a visa, so I moved back to Berlin to do that job remotely and then ran a conference series leading up to the pandemic over there as well. Um, and then the yeah, pandemic came and uh, the job kind of turned a bit sour. I moved to another journal part-time at Media Lab, which is called the Computational Law Report. So I write about technology governance with relation to centralized systems. And all the while, yeah, I was writing papers, giving talks. And now we started the salon uh, about two years ago in the pandemic, an event series, basically, to Rex Salon. Um, and then we started talking about not just Web3 and blockchain topics, but all kinds of like you know, theory, weird theory topics. And then like because blockchains are quite nice toy model systems, there's always an example we can pull out of a blockchain thing, the theory thing that we're talking about very often anyway and so yeah that was kind of like my bitcoin story so i went through basically as a proselytizer as a believer i was banging the drum for bitcoin from 2013 to 2020 um because i saw the benefits this emancipatory liberatory potential of the natively seizable uncensorable unconfiscatable means of value transfer as outweighing the expense the the cost of the energy the heat entropy and the e-waste and the rest of it, other undesirable economic and political stuff. Um, and so that kind of flipped for me in the pandemic. And then I started talking about, like, so we had a topic at the salon called the indifference engine, where I started, we started talking about the, the ecological kind of ramifications of the, the way the system is designed. And it's not so much about what is happening today, because what is happening today is a lot of energy is getting burnt and it's going up. But the kind of 
what is more worrying is about like the extrapolation of that decade decades into the future because the mining is going to be carrying on for decades and so like this thing has a kind of a ratchet mechanism for the scarcity this halving that we discussed the the, the algorithmic um subsidy that's in the block uh, halves every four years so that is ratcheting up the scarcity um and there is this thing that adjusts the probability of the lottery ticket each cycle of computation in the mining the the something every two weeks adjusts the probability of each individual hash being a winning ticket so that the blocks keep out keep coming at a constant rate because bitcoin's a clock as well and so uh, the clock is only as good as its consistency but because of these because of this um this uh this algorithmic adjustment and because bitcoin has no way of differentiating the sources of energy that go into it it does not and cannot care about whether it's coal whether it's solar wind dyson sphere doesn't care cannot care so the fact that it can't be sated because of this uh difficulty adjustment algorithm update every two weeks and the inability to sense with care about its externalities that is what i put together in this indifference engine and i see as this kind of emerging existential threat potential existential threat to humanity and so yeah i'm halfway through writing a book about all this stuff um and then um i was looking for some funding for the salon because we started a residency series and so the bills were mounting up and i started applying for arts funding and um yeah we got the first thing we applied for which is this a uh, european commission program called starts so we're doing the starts fellowship at the moment uh, it's kind of interdisciplinary science technology arts thing and we're doing it on the art of indifference so it's this concept of the indifference engine the bit this inability of bitcoin proof of work to sense with care about its externalities and so we're making a computer game and writing a theatrical play at the moment about all of these things and we're coming from a trying not to come from a moral angle moral perspective because honestly like who cares what one person's opinion is like it's not it's a machine it doesn't care it, like it's this inhuman machine system it doesn't yeah. care what you think so I'm just trying to lay out as objectively as possible the costs and benefits on both sides and let people kind of evaluate that on their merits or otherwise now the play is quite provocative as you can imagine like it's satirical it's a satire of technology mm. so we're making it really extreme it goes into the future we're actually just finishing the script now. Um, the world premiere is in the Kulturvefte, a click festival in the Kulturvefte in Helsingor, Denmark, 18th and 19th of August. And we've invented like future belief cults, um, uh, holy orders, um, hubristic uh, academies, and uh, uh, cartels of uh, carbon carbonaceous capitalists. And so we've built this imaginary stretching 80 years into the future as the planet disintegrates, you know, what happens to the sons of Bitcoin? Because they're mostly sons, 99% sons. <laughs> wow. That sounds amazing. I wish, I wish I could be there. Any plans for Berlin? Uh, not yet, but we'll do it. We'll do it. actually a little recital in Berlin. I don't have the date yet. But like mid to late July, I'll let you know, Matan. Like maybe you can let everyone else know, and that'll be the first open, uh, public, uh, open to the public zero exelon event ever. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the start, I found Bitcoin. Then I found the other coins, and you kind of go on this arc where you find one, then you find all the others. You're like, wow, look at all these other ones. And then every after a few a while, you're like, nothing works. They all like they're just speculative objects, or they you know don't deliver on their promises, or it turns out it was just like a cult of personality, or they weren't honest with you or whatever else and like very often the journey ends with people coming back to just bitcoin and kind of rejecting all the others which again is a very kind of like catholic kind of purity or like a yeah. christian purity thing um which by the way i've got this book in my bag right here 
The Religion of Technology by David Noble. It's amazing. My friend David recommended it to me. Oh, really? This is, this... is from the 90s, I believe. So this is not even about the internet and stuff. This is like basically talking about a lot of the Prometheanism around biotech. Wow. It's really good. 97. 97. So before the dot-com boom. And um, in it, he's talking about, Noble is talking about um, this kind of Promethean urge of the technologists to recapture the god-likeness of, you know, man's image that they lost from the, the fall and the original sin and all the rest of it. And so this is the kind of the Promethean urge in technology. And like, really, I see in Bitcoin and crypto, it's the most extreme we've ever, we've ever seen of that. Yeah. And who was this person or who is this David uh, Noble? David Noble. I can read you a bit of the... Professor of History at York University in Toronto. Taught at MIT. Um, I think it's a Marxist, like Rise of Corporate Capitalism, Forces of Production, and Social History of Industrial Automation. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The, <laughs> the other day I did this uh, con controversial kind of joke tweet about how similar some of these crypto believers are to Mormons because mm -hmm. of this skepticism towards the state, anti-bank tendencies, mm -hmm. forks, etc. Mm -hmm. So obviously there is this religious... I mean, you know what like we're drawing on, Miguel? Like it goes to go, I'm afraid it's far worse than that. We're drawing on the Knights Templar. Like, so yeah. we have our own version of the Knights Templar. Uh, As in, well, in yeah. There. Yeah, they're kind of the Luddites. They're the ones that want to destroy Bitcoin. Um, but we also have like a kind of a, an order. So I I coined this phrase as a kind of like a social a provocation around the social cult of Bitcoin. That these people that will um, uh, hold on to proof of work and Bitcoin, even in, in, in the face of like the ecological circumstance, I call that necroprimitivism. There's a twist on neoprimitivism. So mm. we've actually written scriptural texts for yeah. the play and for the project, uh, mm. written from the perspective of Bitcoin to its to its adherents and so we're turning this into like a full-blown cult in the theater production yeah so the image that you had in one of the articles mm. is really really nice i mean yeah, you've been doing these images that they're oh really, the generative really, ones yeah yeah it's like yeah i guess it, i guess maybe we can talk about the images and the memes because you also mm, have been and yeah. because they are i mean you've done also memes but then yeah. these are in between yeah they're yeah, yeah 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 i mean like um Yeah, where to start? So, like, gener yeah, generative. I mean, th lots of people are using the people are seeing now Dali and Mid Journey and and things like that. So, this is generative adversarial networks. We're using an AI to generate images from text prompts very often. So, I was playing a lot with um, VQ, GAN plus Clip. So, Clip is the semantic engine that you feed words and it turns it into inputs. And then the, uh, VQ GAN is so GAN's basically work as a. It's kind of like a push pull. There's like two two entities and one of them is trying to fool the other one it's like, is it a cat yes is it a dog no and so that it's kind of this kind of um dialogue is going on between these two entities in the system and you're getting these kind of iterations as it's kind of drawing based on the the term its interpretation of the terms that you give it and so as you said earlier i've been writing um, poetry started writing poetry in the pandemic <clears throat> and i was feeding a lot of its critiques of technology right it's almost like in this kind of salon kind of uh, vernacular style so i was writing critiques of the technology into the technology asking the technology to reason about its limitations and getting really kind of weird results from from that um so yeah i, I use that a lot for i think you can think of it more as a welding tool so we were using that to generate these characters these images that we could then go and do 
like whatever, make a game. I made a card, make a card game, uh, using the images from the from the Gans. We used that to do the characters and the scenes from a a, a radio play we made last year. Um, and so I think that's really yeah, really valuable technology. But I would say that this is like, and I've seen how people are posting every day. Everyone's finding these technologies. It's kind of like a co-poetic situation. You're kind of like wrangling a bull. Like it's not you doing this. You're kind of like shouting some words into a black box, and the black box is kind of searching some kind of hyperdimensional possibility space, and that's fine. But it's not like the same as a painter painting something on the. Yeah, I don't think so. But I think they're really powerful tools for worlding and for like generating this kind of like whatever, like wallpaper or something like that. We use it a lot in the salon, like for a lot of our kind of uh, image generation, ideation, and also in like articles as kind of like accompaniment and, and stuff like that. What was the other thing about the, so there's the GANs and the... The images and the like... Um... I'm was in relation to the memes and the memes, yeah. of course, because yeah, you were had yeah. about the memes yeah. and you wrote about them. Yeah, so like we had like little kind of meme, meme practice as well. So like you know we all went crazy in the pandemic. So like one of the ways I dealt with that was I started a meme account on Instagram, and I was just like making memes, sharing them, passing them around, and all the rest of it. And uh, I just had the intro. Uh, I got interviewed for a um, web journal about memes, and they just put it online today, so it's just fresh in my mind. Um, there's something really interesting going on with memes. Like, you know, it's a, this kind of highly compressible vector of information, like cultural content or, or whatever it is, um, that we can package up and, and push around either as atoms or as, as feeds. And it seems to fit really well into this, like, you know, ADD social network feed, algorithmic feed world that we yeah. live in. We have like five seconds to see a thing. <laughs> Feeds so like, or we are making the world uh, in such a way mm. that this is the byproduct of of this world of mm. yeah people with a deficit of attention. Um, yeah, I don't know whether you know whether the chicken and egg is on. on yeah, the, exactly. AD and D cart. I'm not sure. Yeah, but yeah, it's very interesting because you were talking. It's like the disemantization, or like you know, like the emojis and this yeah. culture that is a. New well, what I really of- like about it. So, um, one of the things is that I remember seeing a two by two somewhere, one of these kind of like two by two matrices, and it was about art, the exclusionary kind of you know nature of art forms, and it was kind of like can be made by anyone, can't be made by anyone is to be enjoyed by everyone, isn't to be enjoyed by everyone. And like, you can put opera, like, you know, that's not for everyone. It's not, yeah. it's just not, you know, yeah. you need to know about it. It's expensive. Yeah. You know, you go there, you see the same kind of people. It's like that. Memes, I think are like radically inclusive. Yeah. So anyone can grok. Uh, that's kind of like the mark of a, I suppose, a universal meme, as yeah. you could say. Anyone can grok the, it's like this wordless yeah. kind of, uh, you know, synchronicity. Um, can, can combined over um so yeah we were making memes i've been making memes on and off for, for years like but back in the music days it was posters and flyers and like yeah. i look at them now and i'm like hey these are yeah. kind of memes you know i never thought about but you know it's a kind of folklore like kind of internet folk or something like yeah but then in this high and low culture then where do you situate the nfts because it's like obviously there's a challenge to mm. You know, I guess all the museums and the galleries were when the whole NFT craze started, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, we don't do have we, any idea what about what is this going yeah. on, you know, like kind of on them. But 
there is other forms of is it other forms of elitism occurring with NFT? I mean, there is the problematic, you know, mm. issue about energy consumption. Uh, I don't see it as that problematic for NFTs in particular, okay, honestly, yeah. because um, uh, so we talk. Let's just talk about Ethereum for now, because that's okay. where most of it is happening. That's where most yeah. of the energy consumption is happening. So proof of work networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum need a lot of energy to keep the lights on, whatever happens. Think yeah. about a plane. If, yeah. if the plane has no passengers, it still burns fuel. Yeah. And so then the marginal cost of putting a person on the plane or not Okay. And in, 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 in the NFT sense, this is like if the block is empty, it still costs energy. Yeah. If we make a tran if we make a token, it only burns a very small extra amount of energy than if we didn't. Yeah. So that marginal cost is actually very, very small compared to the fact yeah. that the network is already running. So the question is more about the ethics of whether you think the network should be running or not. Because yeah. given the network is running, the marginality renders the. I don't see it as such of okay. a big ex existential problem. Yeah. We can talk about principles, morals. Yeah. And all the rest of it. It's a bit like, you know, a famous artist says, oh, I'm not going to fly anymore yeah. to offset carbon. I'm like, yeah. that's cool, but that yeah. didn't save the planet, did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's like, it's one, it's an individual yeah, yeah. action, which, you know, it's fine. Yeah. Um, I think with NFTs, like, again, like, we have to think about the potential and the promise and then where we are today. And like, and the gap between those two things, so the gap is actually quite big. There are some people doing quite interesting crypto art projects. They're using the idiosyncrasies of the form to make works that aren't possible any other place. And that I think is really interesting. Yeah. And that's great. That's yeah. what it should be about. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of people kind of um, using the NFT as a container, like a tin, like a, tin, like a tomato soup yeah. tin or something like that and they're just stuffing their products inside it and throwing them out into the marketplace yeah. so it's a way for us to commoditize anything almost yeah. um, I mean there's a you know a whole bunch of cans of worms you can unpick with like you know what do you actually own like what the rights do you own the image do you like what you know what is it you're buying um, but uh, uh, there's an article recently in, in a good critical um, web journal called Outland by Christian Paul and the article was called Authentication in the Expanded Field I believe and in there she makes the point and she's like a um, I don't actually know that art professional auctioneer evaluation archivist preservist she actually knows stuff about the art world and she was making the point that the um, the f potential affordance of NFTs as a certificate of authenticity is hampered by their use as a sales mechanism, which is a bit like the point I was making about the speculative object being like the, the object being speculative, and that then drives the entire kind of vibe or the you know in, uh, uh, perception of the of the thing. Um, so we could be using NFTs in quite kind of boring, useful ways, but instead what we've got is the shiny speculative objects because of the market conditions. Mm. Might be we see actually more interesting stuff now. Yeah. Now that the heat is falling out of the market, uh, coming out of the market, it might seem more interesting, mm. practical uses yeah. of them. But yeah, I mean, really, they're just like very simple tools that we can use to do like actually quite cool stuff. Mm. But most of what we've seen so far is kind of like hello world yeah. level stuff. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like, you know, just as the way that capitalism does, the things that cost the most are arguably some of the least interesting. So, yeah, I have a slide in the talk I've been giving recently called The Revolution Will Not Be Tokenized, where I've got a picture of, you know, Piero Manzoni's artist shit, the Kunstgeschichte from 1961, and a picture of a bored ape uh, NFT. And I'm like, 
there's an arrow indicating equivalence. Uh, and I think there's something there's something to be explored there. Like nobody really cares about the shit inside yeah, the like yeah. do you want Piero's shit? Yeah. Not really. Yeah. You want the certification, the fact that it came from this yeah. place, from this time, and it's that product, it's that object. Yeah. I don't know. Did, has anyone opened those tins? I don't know. <laughs> yeah.